Do you think that Ollie's um, murder will be solved in our lifetime? God, I hope so. I mean, on the one hand, I, I want and hope for that so badly, and on the other hand, I'm trying to make peace in my own heart with the fact that that might not ever happen. I'm really going to know. And this is why I try to make my peace. Because even if they do give us an answer, and, oh, they, they've been dead for how many years, so we're never going to know why. Why did you take her? Why did you do what you did? Why, why did you kill her when you were done? Why didn't you just let her go? Why? <laughs> like, we'll never know. Welcome back to episode two. I'm Richard Price. Before we begin our interview with Holly's cousin, let's review what we heard so far. Because in that 20 minutes or so, we covered a lot of ground with plenty to unpack regarding what we know and don't know. What I have to say is not just based on the investigator's timeline, but also my own research I collected, examples I researched that support my arguments and my experience in journalism for what it's worth. I have a master's in journalism from Harvard University's Extension College, plus 13 years of newsrooms and freelance work. Let me say that those who are sensitive to disturbing content should not tune in. There will be details about the abduction and murder of an innocent child, which is distressing to hear. This story could be harrowing and haunting to some, so please keep that in mind. We heard the story of a child abducted, allegedly by a middle-aged man in a pickup truck, a stranger, who initially had his sights on two teen girls moments before and then focused on Holly because she was alone. It appears there was a sexual motive based on what the teenage girls told the authorities. As we revealed in the early part of the episode, Holly's remains were found in the woods in a nearby town. The specific act of a child abduction homicide by a stranger is rare, according to a case management study from the Attorney General of Washington State, the U.S. Department of Justice, and the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. They collected 175 solved cases in the last decade and added them to their original data set from the 1990s. There are between 40 and 150 incidents of child abduction murder each year, less than half of 1% of murders committed nationally. On average, there is one child abduction murder for every 10,000 reports of a missing child. But let's not fool ourselves. Despite the rarity, if you're a surviving family, like the Peranian family, that number provides very cold comfort. The other thing these numbers tell us is how small the data sample is. Although it is all we have, it won't surprise me if a perpetrator bucks the trend where his behavior will go in a different direction from what the data says. In other words, let's look at this with fresh eyes and be willing to look past conventional thinking. And like you, I'm also prepared to be humbled if I walk down a blind alley or two. But based on the timeline and the details the detectives laid out, allegedly, though not definitively, this crime was committed by a stranger, not only highlighting its rarity, 
but also pointing out how incredibly difficult to solve because of its seemingly random take. According to a 2006 study, more than two-thirds of child abduction murders involved a sexual motive, and this case is no different. Although we haven't yet dived into what crime scene investigators found in October when hunters discovered Holly's remains, it seems clear if we're to follow the timeline the retired cops tell. I also want to say, a child being abducted a short distance from home, in a quiet neighborhood, in the middle of the day, and seemingly in a random fashion by a stranger, triggers an understandable and emotional reaction in a caregiver. Statistics mean nothing to a parent or a guardian who is fearful and protective. I'm also a parent, so like you, I have these exact same reactions. But on one level, this is a sexual assault case, and from that angle, this is very common. Every 68 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted, and every nine minutes, that victim is a child. Over the next hour, over six child victims will be claimed. One out of every six American women has been the victim of an attempted or completed rape in her lifetime. And although men have also been assaulted, 90% of victims are female. One thing that this story from episode one reveals to us is it gives us all a very strong sense of stranger danger. And I get it. It's easy to want to teach our children about that. But I want to emphasize again that child abduction murder cases are extremely rare. And since relatives take many abducted children, typically a non-custodial father, the stranger concept doesn't always work. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children has rewritten the Stranger Danger campaign in recent years. For example, suppose a child gets separated from their parent or caregiver in a mall. In that case, they should know to approach a safe stranger for help with, quote, identifiable markers, including a mother with children, a store clerk with a name badge, and a security guard with a badge. But the government agency also teaches that kids should avoid adults that approach them looking for help by saying something like, help me find my puppy, an example the National Center uses and sadly reminds us of Holly. Law enforcement in the Perrinian case should get credit for their quick initial response. Soon after Holly's dad called the police, less than an hour after he realized his search was not enough, they threw as many resources as they could think of right away helicopters, search dogs, volunteers, uh, dive teams at the nearby lake. It was an overwhelming missing child search. So let's take a minute to unpack this, uh, this timeline that the four retired investigators gave us. I found it to be significant and illuminating because it gives us more detail than we've ever heard in the last 28 years. Most notable, the teen girl's encounter with the man in the pickup truck. So kudos to the, to the investigators for opening up. They offer their conclusions of the events, and there are some I agree with, but you know there are also some that I would respectfully challenge, and we'll get to that in a minute. I also verified by the family that the timeline and the details given by these four investigators were real and was not a hoax. I wanted to interview the retired cops, but I was turned down, and that's disappointing given the fact that this case is 28 years old and counting. 
But clearly, the investigators need more from the general public who have first or second-hand knowledge. Plus, there are over 3,700 unsolved murders in Massachusetts from 1980 to 2019. So clearly, investigators are burdened by large caseloads on top of their daily responsibilities. That said, it tells us a lot more about what happened that day, but the write-up also exposes what I believe are some flaws because the investigators weigh in on their impressions and conclusions. We already know what the Peranian family was doing earlier in the day. Never has a family member been the focus of this investigation. We know that they were swimming in the nearby pond. We know they went uh, that Holly and her uh, brother Zach went to go visit the puppies, which was a, ver a short walk away. We know there were no known witnesses to the abduction, at least at this point, that's the case. And we know, of course, that uh, the only concrete evidence was a sneaker left behind. But this now also includes the teen girls who were close by. They were out getting the mail and having two direct encounters with this man. Uh, it included a partial description of the truck and the lone driver. The four detectives concluded that the man in the pickup truck is the kidnapper and the killer. This is their quote. In our opinion, no rational person who had the opportunity to visit this site saw how close the cousin's driveway is from the dirt road where Holly Peranian was standing, understood how rural the area is, considered the disturbed and sexually compulsive behavior of the middle-aged looking man in the pickup, noted the movement of his vehicle back and forth, and knew the timing and the extreme rarity of this type of crime in this area, would have a shred of doubt that the man in the pickup is the killer. Uh, yeah, I, I went to the spot and I had um, a similar experience as far as seeing how that timeline could have uh, fit. I drove up and down Allen Road. I walked the distance between the Peranian cottage and the spot where Holly disappeared. And a lot of that does mesh up really well. This, this, uh, they also had this to say about the found sneaker. This is another quote. Most likely, one of Holly's sneakers had come off as she struggled to get free from the kidnapper as he lifted her off the ground and into his vehicle. So the key word is struggled. So this is possible. Now, this is, this is something referred to as fight or flight, which is a common term that many believe a victim will choose when they're attacked. And the investigators could be right that that was Holly's response. Their theory argues that the dropped shoe was accidental, and it could have been. But it is possible she deliberately left it as a survival response to alert her family and police. It's also possible she went willingly with her kidnapper as an initial survival response. Now, I know that sounds a little bit off the wall, but hear me out. Psychiatric experts now believe that the term fight or flight is limiting and that the brain can respond differently. More accepted phrases now are survival mode and reflexes and habits. One expert in psychological trauma who is also a teaching associate at Harvard Medical School said when people are being sexually assaulted, their brains and bodies typically go into survival mode, and in that state, their behaviors typically consist of reflexes and habits. 
So I'll give you a simple example. Let's say you accidentally touch a hot frying pan. You know automatically you'll pull your hand away. The reflex of pulling away coincides with the body's survival mode to not be hurt. And this is something that's been developed over hundreds of millions of years. So depending on the circumstances, a victim like Holly might flee or fight, but another option might have occurred. There are numerous survival reflexes that I'll just touch on lightly. One is freezing, which can last a few seconds while the brain figures out what to do. Another extreme survival reflex is tonic immobility, where the body is literally paralyzed and muscles are rigid. Uh, then there's collapsed immobility, in which blood pressure and heart rate drop. The person may feel faint or pass out and muscles go limp. If you've ever been on TikTok, you've seen the videos where people faint briefly from an intense roller coaster or a catapult ride at a theme park. That's collapsed immobility. Another survival reflex is dissociation, when sexual assault survivors often say they felt numb in a dream or out of my body. But habit behaviors, which this psychology expert says are even more common than reflexes during sexual assaults, is what I'll focus on. Children learn polite acquiescence from various authority figures, including parents, teachers, or any other adult that play a role in their lives. Every adult who attended school learned to behave in class or, or be sent to the principal's office or even face suspension. So while being sexually assaulted, otherwise strong and confident children or teens or even adults can in a heartbeat find themselves engaging in submissive behaviors that they learned enable them to cope and perhaps survive when confronted by a dominant person. So let's keep in mind, Holly was 10 years old and her attacker was, if the investigator's storyline is accurate, a middle-aged, full-grown man. Clearly, she would have been physically outmatched. Let me give you an example. In 2006, 14-year-old Elizabeth Schof was kidnapped by a 36-year-old construction worker posing as a police officer as she stepped off a school bus in South Carolina. As he led her into the woods to a homemade bunker, she dropped her shoes as a clue to searchers. For 10 days, she was victimized, but thanks to her efforts to win over her captor, what I would best describe as a reverse Stockholm Syndrome, she was able to walk outside at times to leave strands of hair to use a cell phone to, quote, play games when she was, in fact, sending text messages to her mother, even though she wasn't sure the messages were getting through. The police eventually saved Elizabeth thanks to her ingenuity. She is a unique and an incredibly brave young lady. If you are listening to this and are also a survivor of a sexual assault, help is available. RAIN, which is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, is available at 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. You can also visit RAIN.org, that's R-A-I-N-N.org, for more information or to chat online. So let's get back to Holly's case. Whether it was accidental or deliberate, Adults and children receive the message. No one 
would believe that a 10-year-old would suddenly kick off one of her shoes and then decide to wander off, especially one who had no history of erratic behavior. Holly's 8-year-old brother at the time, Andy, when he returned home with her shoe, he held it up to her, uh, her father and said, Holly's been taken. And Holly's dad, Rick, immediately knew something was wrong. And the police very quickly mobilized an exhaustive, an exhaustive search. I also want to talk about what shows to be you know, a possible flaw in one of the girls' story. Although the overall story sounds solid, this particular detail nags me. Remember after the second encounter, one of the girls heads to a second floor bathroom window that faces Allen Road? She told police she saw the truck speeding by, looking straight ahead, and kept going. Now, and I discovered, and I hope I'm wrong, that there are no homes along that narrow stretch mentioned in the police story of a house with a second floor bathroom window that faces the road. A majority of these homes are conventional, colonial style homes built in the 1980s where second floor bedrooms face Allen Road, not bathrooms. Now I studied public records, Google Maps, I drove the street, and I even called current homeowners. And I took into account additions and teardowns before and after 1993. And I also took into account foliage that would have obscured one's view. And honestly, nothing matches. But, like I said earlier, I'm prepared to be wrong, and I hope I am wrong, and I missed something here. And not just for me, but for the sake of the family who longed for 28 years seeking justice for Holly. Then there's the pickup truck. Either it was white or light brown with a cap over its cargo bed. So... Could this man have been stopped before or after the kidnapping? Was there another offense? And if so, what happened? Did he act alone? Did he live nearby? Or was he transient? How well does he know the area? Does this man have a prior record for assault or worse? Is he in prison for something else? Or is he dead? Do these investigators have tunnel vision since they're so focused on this person? And what about the man in the pickup who stopped to chat with the Peranian kids the day before? And at the same spot as the abduction? Is he the same person, or is it a coincidence? Is it a red herring? The Peranian family needs your help. If you or someone you know has information, please contact the Hampton District Attorney's Office in Springfield, Massachusetts, no matter how seemingly inconsequential. The website is hamptonda.com. That's H-A-M-P-D-E-N-D-A.com. You may also call the Massachusetts State Police Detective Unit at 413-505-5946 or the State Police Unresolved Cases Unit at 855-627-6583. You can also text the word SOLVE to 274-637 from your cell phone. You can also find all this info plus links in the podcast episode description. So let's begin my interview with Leah Jolin, Holly's cousin. If you'll recall, Leah was 13 years old in 1993, and she and Holly saw a lot of each other since Holly was born, especially in the summer of 93 before Holly disappeared. In this interview, you'll hear details about the aftermath, 
their relationship, and how Leah manages the loss over the past 28 years. But also we'll hear how she is surviving a second trauma of someone she loves. We start with their trip to Camp Marshall, an overnight summer camp the girls enjoyed the week before the abduction. Some details help us better understand this case, but the interview also dives into Holly's personality and how Leah deals with the loss. This is a personal account and is honest, but also traumatizing. If you're sensitive, please don't listen. Also, this is a phone interview, so the audio quality is not ideal, so I apologize for that. So, uh, let's see, if, if my... If I'm correct, so you and Holly were at Camp Marshall like the last week of July or something like that? Yes. Okay. So tell me a little bit about Camp Marshall in general. What kind of camp it was, you know, what kind of activities you did? Um, it was a 4-H camp in Spencer. And uh, Doug, my brother Doug and I had been going there for years. That was Holly's first time going there was that that week that summer and we checked in on sunday and took our swimming tests and you get split up into your cabins with your you know your age group girls on the girls side boys on the boys side and then we get to go pick out all our classes for the week and i know she did nature she did drama she did arts and crafts i know she was in swimming because everybody had to do swimming yeah those are the ones I know she did for sure. And uh, she was in cabin two, and I was in cabin C, which basically were across the clearing from each other. Okay. Because you were a little bit older than her, right? Yeah, I was 13, and she was 10. Okay. Yeah, so kind of a big difference between 10 and 13 in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But we were still, we were still close, and I'd still... You know, walk across and hang out with her at her cabin. And Camp, was that a one-week or a two-week? Uh... It was one week. It was, uh, we got dropped off on Sunday, and then um, Grandma and Mom and Dad picked us up um, on Friday. They have, you know, the big closing ceremony and everything. And Did she like camp? She loved it. She did. She had so much fun. There were a few tears. I think she had a crush she had a little crush that week, and I remember I remember some tears at the dance. Hmm. She, I think uh, the boy didn't wasn't really ready. You know, they were ten. I don't think the boys were ready to be dancing with girls yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! So I remember her having a few tears over not getting to dance with the boy she liked, and oh. and then we did. Um, I remember her drama class did Alice in Wonderland. I remember we had a campfire in the small glen, and they put on Alice in Wonderland, and Holly was Alice. Huh. So she was the lead. Yeah. She must have been pretty excited. Yeah, she was, and nervous, too. She was a little bit, she could be a little bit shy at times. I remember her cabin, we also did, um, one of the nights there was like a big lip sync, her cabin did boys to men end of the road and she had on like like really light colored like acid washed light colored jeans and she had on like a really light blue sweatshirt that was kind of big and slouchy mm -hmm. <clears throat> and she had her hair in a side ponytail <laughs> very 90s 
Yeah, very 90s. She had the side ponytail going on, and I remember I remember sitting in the audience watching her, and she kind of got nervous and sort of, like, forgot the words and just sort of, like, locked eyes with me. <laughs> I just kind of swayed back and forth, and... <laughs> That's well, I, can, I remember that so clearly. Like, I can just close my eyes and see her. <laughs> it was kind of a rustic um, camp, or was it kind of a little more fancier than that? Uh, no, it was pretty rustic. Wood cabins, like the lip sync I was just talking about. There was a huge pole barn. So the lip sync was, was in the pole barn, and we I remember doing human bingo in there on days when it rained. And then they had Smiley Hall was the mess hall, which I guess now is gone i guess they tore it down it was a little bit decrepit so but yeah i mean i think the old the old boat shack the old archery shack everything was there you know my mother went to that camp when she was a kid and it was pretty much the same buildings and so what was uh what would you say was holly's favorite uh activities at the camp um she definitely loved the nature the nature drama and the arts and crafts Uh uh-huh she kind probably of, her favorites. And swimming. Swimming probably more than anything, because she was like a little fish. She loved being in the water. Did she already know how to swim when she got to camp? Oh, yeah. Is that was from um, her her grandmother's uh, cabin, so she was in that uh, lake constantly yeah, growing yeah, up? Yeah, we were always, because that's what we called that camp, was what we called the lake house was camp. So not to be confused with Camp Marshall, but... Right. Yeah, Grandma's camp. Yeah, we were all swimming from a really young age. We were always in the water and always out there. Oh, gosh, I remember how stubborn she was. Uh (laughs) I remember, uh, I don't know, it was probably midway. Actually, I think it was Wednesday because, yeah, it was. It was Wednesday, which was the night the dance was. Because I remember seeing her crying, and I was still a little annoyed with her for having an attitude with me. I remember going... It was during some of the free time that afternoon, and we're all hanging out in our cabins, and I went to go walk across to her cabin, and she was standing in the doorway with her hands on her hips, and she saw me come in, and she was with her little, she could be a little bit sassy, Uh and she's like, oh, what do you want? Uh You know, with her little sassy attitude, and I was like, I wasn't taking attitude from a 10-year-old, so I was like, oh, I was like, well, I was coming to say hi and just hang out with you for a bit. I was like, but if you're... You know, if that's your attitude, I was, I'll was i just say bye. And I turned around and started walking back to my cabin. She was like, no, wait. And I just kept going because I could be just as stubborn as she could. <laughs> and then I remember I didn't, you know, I, for the rest of the day until I saw her kind of sobbing by the tree at the dance. So that was her first her first uh, trip to a summer camp, a formal summer camp. It sounds like she just acclimated really quickly. It sounds like... Did she, did she make plenty of friends? I don't know, it was only a week, but did she make friends while she was there, too? Oh, yeah, yeah, she had friends, you know, in her cabins, and I remember after she was gone. Uh-huh. Sorry. All right. She hadn't even um, finished unpacking her, her trunk yet. Uh-huh. And I had lent her a book to read at camp, actually, and the book was about a kid who went to camp. It was called I Want to Go Home. It was like a scholastic book about a kid who didn't like being at camp and kept trying to escape uh-huh. and i lent her that book to read that week and and i remember um after she was gone and i remember being up at my grandmother's house and her trunk was still there half unpacked and i remember pulling that book out and in the book she had a 
a baby picture of my brother and I that she was using for her bookmark of where she was left in that book. And um, she also had like her addresses of all her friends that were going to write to each other. And I don't know what happened to that book. For a long time, I had it tucked away somewhere. Was there a um, a self self defense type class during that week? No, no, there was nothing like that. Okay. One of the things that I've heard before, and I don't know if this is true or not, is that Holly had said that if anything happens to me, I'm gonna I'm gonna take one of my shoes off or something to that effect. I'm not familiar. I mean, I haven't heard anybody mention that, so I'm not familiar with having heard her say that. But, I mean, she was scrappy. She was a fighter. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if maybe, you know, maybe she did say that to someone and I just wasn't privy to it. And, I mean, but, I mean, I could see her kick. It's weird. I had a weird kind of reoccurring dream, I think, when she was missing or in the first couple of years where I was there seeing it happen. And, and I don't know if it was just, you know, like we had, I was always, you know, I was 13. So they tried to keep me, you know, go watch the kids so we can talk about this, you know, what's going on. And they would always send us kids down to the basement. It was a finished basement and that was mostly where we played and, and everything. And they would be on the main level kitchen dining area talking with the police or talking with psychics or talking with whoever, you know, we could get to talk to us. Um, and I would always kind of like hide on the stairs and just sort of like, you know, make sure the kids weren't screaming. But I was always on the stairs trying to listen to what was going on. And, and I can remember, I even forgot what I was remembering. There was something specific I was going to say I remembered hearing. And now I don't remember what it was. It'll come back to you. It will. <laughs> You're doing great, by the way. Um, and... Okay, so it, I we have a pretty good, pretty good sense about Camp Marshall in that week before, and um, so at the end of the week, of course, you parted ways. Did you go home? Did you go somewhere else? And we all know where Holly went. She went to we uh, we went to McDonald's and Spencer after, and it was crazy. We were my brother got because, um, like I said, the last day of camp, they do a, a ceremony. All the parents come and. They, we do the whole closing ceremony, and there, of course, they give out the camp awards, which I never, ever got one. My brother, every year, he would get something. I never got one once. I don't know. I must have been a horrible character. <laughs> but, um, of course, that was, my brother got an award, so we were all hanging around. And I think we were, like, some of the last campers there. Pretty much everybody had checked out and gone. And we were just hanging out. You know, Doug and I were older. We loved the counselors. We were, you know, Doug especially was very popular with the counselors. We liked to hang out and say our goodbyes. And I remember we were standing out in front of Smiley Hall, which was the dining hall that's torn down now. And there was like a, you know, there was a little parking lot there. And right in front of the parking lot, there was like a hitching post where if people from the horse camp rode their horses down, they could tie their horses up. And you could kind of sit on it. And mom and grandma and dad had us, the three of us, it was Doug and Holly and I were the only three that were old enough to be at camp. And they were taking pictures of us. And, you know, they were like, stand there and just let us take your picture. And I just grabbed her and was just hugging her. 
And I was hugging her, like, so hard, so tight. She was like, oh, my God, Leah, stop. She was like, you're squeezing me. Yeah, like, I have pictures, you know, and I'm hugging her, and her cheeks are all puffed out like a puffer fish because I'm squeezing her so tight. And I just didn't want to let her go. And I just remember, like, that photo session, and it was just weird because I feel like, you know, it's just weird, like, it was meant to happen or we all knew it was going to happen kind of way. And, like, somehow somehow deep down inside I knew that was the last time I would see her strange so I'm glad you know I'm so happy when I look at that picture I feel so darn happy that I hugged her I hugged her so hard she almost threw up <laughs> and then after that we uh, we all went to McDonald's and had some food there and then you know we were getting in our car to go home to ocam and holly was going with grandma to go back to grafton and and i just as we parted ways in the parking lot holly and i were like bye and the further away we got from each other the louder we yelled goodbye until we were in our cars like you we were, just said goodbye so big <laughs> you were really close you saw a lot of each other growing up yeah especially that summer i mean yeah we were like, I feel like every other weekend, we were either, they were sleeping over our house, or we were sleeping over at Ricky and Tina's, or we'd be up at Grandma's house, or... Wow. And especially that last, I mean, before we went to summer camp, it was probably a week or two, I don't even know at the time, I just, I feel like that summer we were together, my brother had his sixth grade graduation, so I know she, I remember her being at our house for his sixth grade graduation that weekend in June, and then her and I were out at camp with grandma for like a week before we that was probably in june or early july i remember grandma was like if you two don't stop fighting i'm sending you both home to your parents because <laughs> we just kept oh. yeah, we were like you know we were just she was so stubborn <laughs> what did you fight about do you remember i remember getting in an argument we were doing a load of laundry and she was trying to put the fabric softener, just dump it in, like, with the laundry detergent. And I was trying to tell her there was a separate place to put the fabric softener. You didn't put it in the wash. Uh -huh. And she was like, no, and arguing with me about that because she was very kind of independent. She was very much an old soul and kind of did her own laundry at times at home. And I think she just would put everything in. And no one ever told her until I was like, hey, no. But she had been doing it by herself for a while, so she knew what she was doing, and she, you know, didn't want me telling her different. <laughs> so I remember getting into an argument about where fabric softener goes. That's so funny. And I remember sitting on the deck and watching some kids, some older kids, probably teenagers, go out on jet skis. Uh -huh. And there was one, and we were arguing whether it was a girl or a boy on a jet ski, and I was like, it's a girl and she was arguing that it was a boy it was a girl i swear it was a girl so i remember arguing about you know we were just and then we would just argue to the point that we just get so stubbornly mad at each other that neither one of us wanted to give in but i also remember that week there was like a meteor shower that was going to be like late at night and we were trying to stay up to watch a meteor shower and I remember brushing her hair. She had long, long blonde hair, and it was so thick and silky. 
and she was always in the water and she would get out of the water and she wouldn't really let it dry all the way and she would kind of brush the top layer but she didn't really get underneath so underneath she had like all tangles and mats in her hair and I spent probably three hours in the bedroom upstairs after we were supposed to have gone to bed we were trying to stay awake for that meteor shower like just with her with her head on my lap combing her hair just combing all the snarls and all the knots and mats out of her hair and trying not to hurt her which you know i kind of had to at some point she was like ow 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 and i finally got it all combed out like it was so much work and her hair combed out <laughs> so she really did look like uh, alice in wonderland at that point yeah 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 it was just it was just it was nice on top, but once you got that top layer, she didn't get that brush underneath. It was, and then we finally got her hair combed out and fell asleep in this meteor shower. <laughs> oh. I, I also remember there was like a big thunderstorm coming. It was coming from the west because it kind of hit Ocam and there had been a little tornado. And that's where my parents lived. And they called and said, oh, there's a big storm coming. So Holly and I just were little storm watchers. So we went out onto the deck and we made like a little tent with the grill cover. I just remember sitting under the grill cover, like with the wind and waiting for the storm to come. And her and I, I was kind of a morbid kid. I was very into, you know, like after Adam's family came out, like I wanted to be just like Wednesday Adams, Christina Ritchie. I wanted to dye my hair black. I wanted white skin. You know, we lived in Massachusetts, obviously. So, like, I loved going to Salem and learning about witches. So that was that was just me. I was very witchy. Very goth phase you went through. Yeah. And so, and I, you know, Guns N' Roses was my favorite band. And Holly, just anything that was my favorite was her favorite. Because she just looked up to me so much. That's amazing. And I remember sitting under there just having some really dark conversations. And because I was very morbid and I was, I don't know, I was dark. And I remember talking about, you know, like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to live past 21. And, and when I die, I'm going to find, you know, I remember having this conversation about like, if we died, how we would communicate with each other and how we would find ways. And of course, I always thought it would be me, you know, like, because I was just so tragic and black and my fingernails were black and everything and i just remember sitting there having that conversation i remember like literally you know doing like crossed pinky swear you know that we're gonna find a way like if one of us something happens to one of us that we're gonna still stay in touch and she promised me that she's done it (laughs) in ways that probably creep a lot of people out but what would you say how your life has changed or developed since that day in august um i mean it definitely whatever track my life was on it went off off the rails that day i mean i think most of my teenage years i was just so broken depressed post-traumatic stress i mean i look back on it now i was you know i started drinking (laughs) just to kind of numb it you know not right away not at 13 probably about 15 and so i think that summer the summer after holly died i I spent that summer that next summer in california with a friend of mine 
and then the summer after that, I was back at Camp Marshall as a counselor in training. And um, you know, and it was it was hard being there. I remember, you know, I was happy to be there because that was always our place every summer. But it was really bittersweet going back there. And uh, you know, it was it was hard. The teenage years going through. I remember I started eighth grade. She was still missing. You know, and of course, everybody knew. So it was really weird. It was kind of like being ostracized. People either didn't, people don't know what to say to you. So they really just don't talk to you at all. Kind of thing. So, and then, of course, you know, that went on. I really kept to myself in high school. I just sort of wasn't, I wasn't very social. I didn't really have school spirit or spirit for anything at all. I just... Just, I just got through it, you know? Yeah, we just wanted to survive it. And... And you did. Really, I mean, really honestly, at that time, I wanted to be with Holly. Uh-huh. More than anything, that was just... It was it was a dark, dark time. Yeah. Absolutely. And I remember... Uh, when I was in my first year in college, I don't know if it was my... I don't know if I had finished my first year in college, or if I was... No, I must have finished it. No, I did finish my first year in college. Um, But my grandmother, uh, my Aunt Carla, Julie, Tony, Zach, and Andy, and Doug, I'm assuming Doug was there, we all went up to Vermont for like a summer vacation to do the alpine sleds and stuff. And I remember my aunt had a book in her car and at the moment, I'm drawing a blank on the name. It's um, Dr. Michael Newton. It was basically a life about a book about um, past. He was a, a hypnotist. He did past life regression, and he had been doing hypnotism for something, and started doing past lives, and then started being able to do like a between life hypnosis. And his whole book was like, I'll have to, I'll have to get back to you on the title of it because I'm just completely drawing a blank right now. But that book was really what started turning me around and really giving me something to have faith in, something to, something positive to kind of hold on to. And I sort of really used that because for me, it wasn't going to be religion. Everybody's going to find their own way to, their own way to kind of claw themselves out of grief. Yeah. And uh, for me, it was Dr. Michael Newton, Life Between Lives, maybe. We'll Google it. Yeah, I'll have to look it up. I know he's got a second book out now, but I mean, that book was really kind of gave me that first piece of something to to cling on to, to start clawing my way back to, you know, life of some kind of normalcy. And then then after that, about a year or so later is when I came down to Disney. And, And during that time I was working, my mom and I were volunteering with the Molly Bish Foundation so I was going out on weekends, you know, I was trying to make it something positive and keep Holly's name alive. And so we'd go out, I would do the um, pictures and they'd do p- fingerprints and you'd make a little book of your kid, you know, in case any, what happened to Holly or Molly happened to them, you'd have something to give to the police. Right. And, um, and I think I, you know, I started doing that to sort of try to bring something positive out of everything I had been through and 
you know, trying to find a positive path to make out of that. And that, I got burnt out pretty quickly doing that. Do you think about Holly every day? Absolutely. And um, does it get any easier, or is it you just come up with coping mechanisms? I think you just come up with coping mechanisms. I mean, I've really, I've, I've, it's been a long road, and, and I kind of developed, I developed this whole, I guess, shell. I call it my Holly shell, and it started with, with Dr. Newton's book, and just kind of having this thing, like, we, we have these destinies that we choose, and it was like, you know, like, what happened to Holly? I kind of developed this theory that she chose that path for herself before she was ever born. That was meant to happen to her. I chose this path. I was meant to have that experience and that pain and that grief, whatever our souls needed to grow in this life. We chose this. And I developed all that after reading more books than just that one. But I, I feel very comfortable with my sort of soul theory. And I can kind of live with that and know that I was meant to have her in my life. I was meant to lose her. I was meant to have this pain and try to live with it and grow from it. And I always sort of gave myself this safety net that, you know, what happened to Holly going through that from the time that I heard on the phone that she was missing to the, you know, the, the day that the phone rang and the news was coming out at the same time as my phones was ringing to say that the body had been found and every day after then. You know, like I've just kind of went through my 20s telling myself nothing is ever going to touch me again. Nothing is ever going to hurt. Like I have been through something so terrible that there's really not much worse you could go through. So I was like, I kind of made myself feel safe. And then, um, and then, uh, 10 years ago, next weekend, Memorial Day, uh, May 27th, 2011, my husband was murdered. Are you serious? Wow. Yep. <laughs> he went to a, went to go wash his car and he was shot and killed at the car wash in Orlando. Holy crap. Oh, and it I'm was sorry. like, you know, I, and that kind of blew me out of the water again because I was like, you know, nothing's ever going to hurt that bad again. And then you kind of learn, you know, that you're never safe. <laughs> as long as you love people, you're always going to be open to hurt so i mean oh, it really so sorry so now it's been 10 years kind of having both of them and they, they would be the same age today you know they were both born in 83 um holly was january luke was june she still sits with me now i mean now that i've become a mom myself and i know julie kind of touched on that and it's something that she and i talk about a lot is you know like that that we don't get to keep them like, it's, I love my daughter so much, and for a long time, I never, I, it was hard, because I really wanted to be a mom, but at the same time, I don't, didn't, because what happened to Holly, what happened to Luke, that pain that you open yourself up to, and, it, and it's true, I mean, three years on, there are times where it's like, the fear of everything for for her and i feel like you know after luke died and holly was gone i i really let a lot of that fear go because i was like you know what i'm not afraid to die because i've got good people waiting for me and i 
know they're okay. I know they've passed on and that their souls are good and that they're at peace now. I know it. But, um... It seems to me that you have um, this strength that uh, you probably never felt you ever had. Is that true? Yeah, definitely. And I, um, after Luke died, I started going to a, a homicide survivor support group, which was which was really, really great in a lot of ways. Because we never, as a family, none of us really ever had any counseling. I think maybe Andy and Zach did a little bit. Um, but we really never had any kind of mental health help for any of us. So once I started going to that support group, that I did find that that... Um, helped me to realize how strong I really was. And especially having Holly's murder still unsolved going on, you know, 28 years this year. I can't even... It's 28, yeah. Yeah, I can't even do the math. And now it's going to be 10 years next week for, for Luke. And they never caught the person that shot him. Is still, you know, so I've got two... Not only do I have two people that I loved that were murdered, but two unsolved murders and... And I've even come to my peace with that just because going through the the support group over the years, so many of the people, a majority of the, the other families going through that are have had somebody arrested and they're going through the court system and going through the trial and having things either, you know, having a conviction and then having an appeal. And honestly, it's like a second assault and as much as I want those things and I want justice, it's also kind of terrifying to have to, you know, having seen families, you know, they, uh, one case I'm thinking of in particular where it was a road rage incident, the guy was arrested, he was convicted, and then his whole, he went to jail, and then it, the whole thing got thrown out on the peel, on appeal, and the guy gets to be, you know, and this, this poor kid's parents were just left like, you know, just broken again so it's really hard but um i've um i've actually become every once in a while i will speak for the group now that i've, I've been through it so long and so much and and i've have a very unique path that i've taken to as i say claw my way out of the deep pit of grief that you find yourself in and uh, and having kind of had to do it twice um post-traumatic Oh, I forgot my word again. Post-traumatic power is kind of what I started calling it. Once you kind of transcend the stress and the heartbreak and the grief, you kind of, you can find power in it if you are looking in the right places, I guess. That's, that's amazing. That's amazing that you have experienced two major tragedies like this. Um, I honestly... I've never met anybody before who had that kind of experience. And I, I would imagine most people have not. That's, um, it says a lot about you. It says a lot about your inner strength. And I think it also, um, these words, I think, when um, it comes to light, because we we'll certainly want to tell your story, I think it's extremely important. I think we'll bring a lot of... Uh, a lot of strength to people who are going through a difficult time. And that would really, and just that would be even more help to me. And that's kind of one of the things I've been thinking about, you know, recently. I went back to school 
um, a couple years ago after after Luke died, when I started getting into a you know mentally healthy place, I went back to school for funeral services um, to become a funeral director because it was something I was even before Holly died. Like I mentioned, I was always kind of morbid and sort of interested in the the dark and side of things. Um, and that was something that, you know, after Holly died, when I was graduating high school, I seriously, seriously considered that path. And and then I kind of thought I didn't want my life to be all about death. And I just, you know, went different ways with Disney and everything. Yeah. And uh, after Luke died, I ended up back there. And I, I did go back to school and get my, get my degree in funeral services. Yeah. And... Um, and I did kind of start talking, um, you know, my friend, my grief counselor that, that is the um, facilitator of the, the homicide support group, you know, she kind of was the one who kind of got me thinking about that and thinking about how I can use, you know, my experience to really help other people. And, and she talked to me about just being like, you know, I've been a keynote speaker at a couple different um, events that they've put on and like zooms and stuff really the last year i've kind of kind of thought a little bit about writing a book yeah yeah i just i don't know where to start <laughs> so we'll see what happens next but i just you know like i said i'm just trying to stick with post-traumatic power like as horrible as it is and i mean i could sit here and i could cry on, you know and that's what people talk about like how can you i could cry on a dime like it takes me two seconds to turn the waterworks on it's so easy to do because it's there's just so much fuel <laughs> fuel there for it but at the same time it's like like i mentioned with the michael newton's book like i whatever reason whatever my soul purpose in this life you know we every one of us has a soul every soul has a purpose for being in our body and experiencing everything we experience in this life and with holly and with luke i mean what i had to go through that was there's some purpose for it <laughs> I have to believe that in order to get out of bed every day. <laughs> and what, what is the purpose, do you believe? Just to find my post-traumatic power. I mean, my own purpose. I mean, I, that's got to be it. And whether I use that to help other people or I just use it for my own personal growth and my own soul to take with me into the next life, I, I'm not sure, but that's just what I'm going with. <laughs> do you think that... Um Holly's um, murder will be solved in our lifetime. God, I hope so. I mean, on the one hand, I, I want and hope for that so badly. And on the other hand, I'm trying to make peace in my own heart with the fact that that might not ever happen. I'm really going to know. And this is why I try to make my peace. Because even if they do give us an answer, and oh, they, they've been dead for how many years, so we're never going to know why. Maybe not. You know, I mean, whatever. Why? Why'd you take her? Why did you do what you did? Why? Why did you kill her when you were done? Why didn't you just let her go? Why? <laughs> like, we'll never know. You've been amazing. And that's what eats. That's You've, what eats at you. <laughs> Thank you. You've really been amazing. I just started opening up, and it just kind of felt good. Feels real good. To get some of that out, I actually feel a little bit lighter right now, just because it, it really does, it weighs. Oh, I've had, and especially, I've you know, had I think chills a lot of families, this whole time. It, Everything, you would say something, and I would just get chills, and I'm getting chills again. 
It's just, uh, it's amazing what you, the things you said, and so much about uh, your, what you've gone through in your life, and openly talking about uh, your husband, uh, which was an incredible bombshell, um, and just, just even right off the bat, talking about Holly, and what she was like, and everything else, was just like so dead on awesome. Oh, good. I'm glad. It It was nice to talk about her. You know, I know for myself, and I'm sure anybody who's gone missing a loved one and grieving a loved one for so long, you know, time goes on and people, life goes on and you forget and you compartmentalize and you, you know, you just, you tuck it away, you know, you tuck it into a safe place and you try not to go into that corner of your heart or that corner of your brain too often and but, uh, but that weight, you know, the more you avoid that corner, the heavier it gets. So it's nice to every once in a while just be able to open it and just kind of let it flow out. Tune into episode three to meet Dr. Jim Adcock, founder of the Mid-South Cold Case Initiative and an expert on unsolved homicides. We'll take a macro look at victimology, suspectology, and crime scene analysis. I want to thank the Peranian family for their support and cooperation in this podcast, and of course you, the loyal listener. This episode was written, recorded, and narrated by me, Richard Price. Music is by Immersive Music. A big thanks to Brad Pierce from Starfleet Audio. And did you like this episode? Please give us a five-star review. It helps our ratings and could aid in reaching a listener who can help solve this case.